I want you to think about how all these traits, we've got to start with some kind of a starting base, right? So all of us desire to be loved, to be accepted. God made us that way. God made all of his image bearers with certain traits and characteristics. And so we have turned that into uh, all sorts of, um, you know, cliches like, you know, everybody has a God-shaped hole in their heart or something like that, which is not untrue. It's just kind of vague. The truth is, is that we're all made to desire acceptance. We're all made to desire love. And the reason is because we're made to be accepted by and to be loved by God. Right? That's the reason. You know, the other thing is that we're all, we, every human is made pliable. You see, anytime that you or I say, I can't change, we're lying. That is a lie. We don't want to change. You see, we, God made humans pliable. We're changeable. We, we're, that's how he made us. And so the Bible, the Bible doesn't, doesn't say, well, okay, this is true for you, but this is true for them. This is true for some of you. Or if you have this personality, this is true. No, the Bible says that these things are true of all image bearers. And so we, if it doesn't matter if you're human, whoever you spend the majority of your time in close proximity to, you will be, your, you will be altered by that relationship. You cannot hang around people closely without changing because we're pliable. That's, that's just how we're made. And so God made us, think about it, everything has a reason. He made us pliable, why? Because He made us for community with Him and with each other. And so He made, so in a perfect world, when we're loved and accepted by Him, and then we, we walk through life in a Christian community, Everything's amazing. But what happens when, we, when that's not the case? Then what happens is everything gets flipped upside down and becomes a catastrophe because we, it's still true of us, and so then all these counterfeit things start happening, right? So that's why we, we desire. Now, well, here's the thing. We're born into a world where we're shown love and acceptance based on our performance. All of us, grew up in a performance-based system. If you had the most amazing, loving, nurturing, encouraging, gospel-centered parents that ever lived, I'm so jealous, but if you did, if you did, then you still grew up in a performance-based system because you went to school and you got a job. And you know what you learned at school? Performance-based love. You know what you learned at your job? Performance-based acceptance. So, you know, as soon as you walked out of the house, if you ever played a sport, if you ever, unless you never left the house, grew up on a, on a, on a deserted island with perfect parents, then you grew up in a performance-based system. And so what we do is, because of the way we're made, we're going to continue to perform in order to receive what we desire. Because we cannot ignore this desire that's within us. And so what it does is we, 
we, I always refer to this as the, the performance trap because that's what it is. We, we're, we get in the performance trap. And so we, we've been a, the, the hamster in the wheel going around and around and around. Okay, then if God comes into the picture, what happens is and salvation performance is replaced by grace. And so you all understand what I just said about performance because you, you've all experienced it or maybe you're still experiencing it. Many of us are still experiencing it. So, so what happens is grace then replaces performance. So now, see, people show us love and acceptance based on performance. God shows us love and acceptance based on grace. And grace is is a completely different motivator. Every, that everything changes when performance is taken out and replaced by grace. It is a just completely radical, life-altering experience. And yet, there's... So, in, in this time we spend together tonight... I will say things that are directed at people who have already had performance replaced by grace, but you're still living in a performance trap. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're walking in freedom. Just because you're free doesn't mean you're living free. You can be free and live in bondage. Now, here's the important statement that you need to think about. So salvation doesn't make us perfect, but because of His perfection, we no longer need to fear our imperfection. So what we're saying, what I'm saying is, is that when grace replaces performance, see, I'm still a broken person. So in the performance trap, I was trying to conceal my imperfections and I was trying to hide or, you know, just minimize and maximize the, the things that I felt confident at or I was good at or whatever the case may be. And so, but, so when grace replaces performance, I'm still broken. See, I still make mistakes. I, I mean, salvation didn't make me perfect, but what happened is I've been saved by someone who's perfect and so now... His grace now comes into my life and, and I gain this love and acceptance based on, but all my life, depending on, you know, your circumstance and situation, you've been conditioned to, and here's the thing, growing up prior to salvation, you, there were certain people that you performed more rigorously for. Because the degree to which you perform is based on the degree to which you want that person's love or acceptance, right? Correct. So you can become a Christian, and then maybe it's every time you, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a grown adult, and every time you get around your mom, you revert back into the performance trap. Or every time you, or maybe you, you get saved, but you're still operating in the performance trap at work. Or you're still operating in the performance trap with your kids or with your spouse or 
whoever, with your, in, your, in certain friendships, whatever it is. And so when salvation comes, it doesn't make us perfect. But the difference is, is that because Christ is perfect, I don't fear my imperfections anymore. I'm not hiding from those things. You see, because whatever we fear, we hide from. If, if you say, well, why are you hiding? Well, that's a dumb question. It's always the same answer. If you ever ask anyone, why are you hiding? That is a dumb question. You should be asking, why are you afraid? Because you're hiding because you're afraid. And if you're hiding from something, you're asking yourself, well, why am I hiding? That's a dumb question. You should be saying, why am I afraid? Because whenever we're hiding, we're afraid. There's no other reason to hide. And so tonight is the letter A, and A is for authenticity. And you may be thinking, what did what you just said, which I can tell resonates with you, have to do with authenticity? And it has everything to do with authenticity. And authenticity is a big deal in our culture right now. And it's, uh, it's pretty pathetic because... I don't think anyone in the culture has any idea what being authentic actually is. And it's getting more and more elusive. It's more elusive now than it's ever been in the past. And we're careening off the cliff. So I, don't, I honestly don't know what's going to happen to the generation to come. I mean, but I'm, I'm not going to worry about that because I'm not God. He's got that under control. But it is a... Uh, but I am... I am fascinated by the scenarios that are happening culturally right now with regards to authenticity in, the, in like our student population that's meeting next door right now. Now here's our principle. I don't have time to chase that rabbit or we'll never get out of here. Here's our principle. Grace enables me to live in authenticity and to repent when I don't. Because remember, salvation didn't make me perfect, right? So in salvation, understand how perfect God's plan is. He saves us, and in saving us, He does all of these things, but, but in doing that, He gives us this gift called repentance. Now, I'm going to try to, you know, I'm going to do my best to be as nice as I can tonight. But the truth of the matter is, is that most people in church today resist, reject repentance. It's not a, it, it is, and every time I talk about repentance, it's hard for me to not get frustrated because it's so frustrating but I know for a fact that most of you in here tonight do not live a life of constant repentance. And I do not understand why. I do not understand why. It is baffles me. It's one of the greatest gifts God has given. And you leave it wrapped under the tree. And it just blows my mind. So maybe we can make some headway tonight with this conversation. Alright, so we're going to look at this little passage out of Galatians 2. 
you'll recognize it when we get moving. All right, Galatians 2.11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, he withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, what is going on? Who's at Antioch? The Apostle Paul. Now, you might remember this one when I preached through Acts a year and a half, two years ago, whatever it was. So the Apostle Paul, this is in the, in the beginning of the, the church. The church is just uh, launching out. And so you got the Apostle Paul out there who's met Jesus on the Damascus Road and gone through this revolution. And, you, and, and Peter, who's really the, the, the main uh, apostle at this point, if you will. And Antioch is this place where the church is just kind of blowing up. And what you have... Is, is this tension where uh, the Jews have always been the people of God and now salvation, because the Holy Spirit has come, salvation is moving out into the Gentiles. And so they're trying to figure out how this is going to work. And so Paul is ministering it at Antioch. And so here are these two sort of colossal figures. I mean, these are the two preeminent religious, theological, biblical. These are the two biblical giants in the world at this moment. Peter and Paul. And it's about to be a collision. And so Paul is writing Galatians. So when the Bible says, I withstood him to his face, Paul is Challenging Peter face to face. Now, we'll get into the details in a minute, but I want you to understand something here. Here's Paul, the greatest evangelist and church planner who ever lived. Peter is, is great in his own might. Probably you could make the case that Peter might be the greatest public communicator because of the extraordinary success he had communicating the gospel publicly. And so you've got Paul, and he's got a problem with what's going on with Peter, and so he doesn't go behind his back. He doesn't just get one side of the story. He doesn't just sort of fly off the handle, or, you know, it's not, he's not threatened because somebody's moving into his territory or something. These are two guys that are, that are if anyone's, you know, walking with God, it's these two. But he did what we all ought to do when we hear something troubling, when we know something troubling about another brother or sister in Christ, he goes to him directly, face to face, and he has a conversation. Now, it's strange to me that just, just reading Galatians 2.11, immediately... You, did you, you, you feel the tension and like we, in our culture, we get tense and we feel like uh, this is conflict. It's not conflict. It's not conflict to me. Everyone feels like it's conflict. Why is it conflict? Well, I mean, why can't, me and you have a conversation about something hard or touchy 
It's not conflict. It's just a conversation. It's okay. We don't have to be so fragile. And that's why nothing ever gets worked out. Because nobody's willing to have a conversation. Just, you know, have a conversation. Now, these are two authentic people, although they're in two different places right now. And so we'll focus on uh, the Apostle Paul for a moment. And he's going to illustrate how authentic people don't talk about people. They talk to people. You see, one of the things about authenticity is you speak to people. You don't talk about people. You talk to people. You know, authentic people don't gossip, but they don't. But not only that, they don't listen to gossip. Now, the Bible says, because he was to be blamed, or if you read it in the ESV, it would say he stood condemned. And so, you know, and these are Paul's words, because Paul has, it's come to Paul's attention that there's a problem. And so Paul's dealing with the problem. And so when Paul says he stood condemned, it's because, well, there's a problem. That something's going on that's unbiblical. Something's going on that doesn't honor God. So we need to have a conversation. Now, what Peter has been doing is, is that Peter was, uh, was coming to Antioch, and he was hanging out with all the Gentiles. And he was eating with the Gentiles. Now, the deal is the big separating factor between the Jews and the Gentiles at this time had to do with, a lot of it had to do with dietary laws. Because all the things that the Gentiles ate, the Jews thought were totally unclean and they would never eat them. And so that was a big problem. And so Peter uh, has, has been sort of, uh, you know, God showed Peter, hey, it's okay. We're taking the gospel to the Gentiles now, so don't worry about all that. It doesn't matter. All that dietary stuff is passed on. That's, that's from the Old Covenant. Now the Spirit of God's here, and this thing's going global, and so that's gone. And so Peter goes to Antioch, and he's hanging out with the Gentiles, and he's eating pork ribs and shrimp on the barbie, and, man, he's, you know, shooting raw oysters, and he's just having himself a party. All the things no Jew would do. But then when, when people come who would look down on that, he stops doing that. And he goes away from the Gentiles and doesn't act like, you know, he wasn't doing it. Now, Peter wasn't condemned by a person. He was condemned by his actions. His actions had put him in the position of condemnation. And again, that's not bad. I mean, that's not good, but it's not the end of the world. And this is what I want you to understand. Salvation, remember, salvation doesn't make us perfect, right? And so we condemn ourselves all the time because we're not perfect. And so what do we do when we condemn ourselves? We repent. That's how this is supposed to work. So Peter's actions had condemned him. So Peter was condemned by three things. 
the God he represented, the gospel that he preached, and the grace that saved both Jews and Gentiles. You see, because he was, he was working against all three of those things. So then we get the explanation in verse 12, the next verse. For before certain men came from James. Now where's James? James is in Jerusalem. And so he's talking about the Jews from Jerusalem. He would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, so when the Jewish delegation came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. You know, Barnabas, he's the, you know, the, the guy who wants to just encourage everybody. He's the peacemaker. And so he gets wrapped up in all this stuff because, you know, hey, Peter's the leader. They're kind of looking at Peter. And so they all get wrapped up. And so they start acting, you know, in this hypocrisy. Now, why would... Peter do this. I mean, this is the guy who stands up at Pentecost and preaches a, a, his first sermon and 3,000 people get saved, just like that. I mean, literally, he had, he had close to 10,000 converts in a matter of a couple days from his preaching. And so it just seems a little crazy. Like, what is going on here? But Peter separated himself because of fear. And here's the thing. What did he fear? He feared rejection from the Jews. And, and, and I know that if I sat here and talked about all the things that Peter had accomplished and all the things that, you know, that he, he wrote you know, two books in the New Testament, all the things that God had used him to do and so on and so forth, and all the times... Jesus had singled him out and spent special time just with him and, you know, anointed him and called him to certain things and all this. You would say to yourself, this is ridiculous. Why is he fearful? To which I would say to you, exactly. That's exactly what God wants to say to you tonight. There are people in your life right now and you fear their rejection. Why? Why? Why do you fear their rejection? Now imagine how devastating this was on the Gentile believers in Antioch. How would you feel if you were this, you know, brand new, saved Gentile, this is all brand new, and all of a sudden you were you know, condemned out and had no chance of ever coming in, and now you're in, and then all of a sudden these guys come in town, and then Peter acts like he doesn't even know you, and so you're trying to figure out, now wait a minute, am I really in? You know, am I really saved? Am I really like, I mean, they're trying, that, you know, it's just messing everything up. See, what Peter did is, Peter rejected the crowd he should have accepted because he wanted to be accepted by the crowd he should have rejected. You see, oftentimes, the people you're trying to either maintain or harness their acceptance 
It's already, I already know, I don't need to know who it is and what it is. I already know it's unhealthy because here's the thing. They're playing the game with you. And so what we do is we start, we start mixing up what we should accept and what we should reject. And we start inverting everything. And here's what we need to understand is that fear is always the enemy of authenticity. The reason why we struggle with being authentic is because our lives are riddled with fear. Listen, wherever you are uh, you know, ashamed, whatever it is about you that you're, you would, you're ashamed or you, would, you were embarrassed about or you whatever, you would never want anybody to know about you or whatever the case may be, it's fear. And the thing about it is, is that what, what is important tonight is not that, uh, it, it's not in the, um, the reason it needs to be addressed is not because uh, we all need to just be you know, completely transparent with each other and tell everybody all our deepest, darkest secrets. I mean, that just makes everything awkward, in my opinion. But here's the thing. We got to get rid of the fear. And so sometimes the only way to get rid of the fear is to, is to let it out. I mean, what I'm saying is the fear is the enemy. Whatever you got to do to get fear out, you got to get it out. Because it'll kill you. It is horrifically deadly. And it's unbelievably powerful. See, fear will cause you to bow to pressure rather than surrender to principle. Now, here's what I mean. Fear is so powerful that fear will override what you know to be true. Yes, it will. So if you think tonight that I absolutely, positively know this to be true, great. If it's true, that's awesome. But let me tell you something. It is no match for fear. Fear will slaughter that thing in five seconds. Absolutely. Peer pressure annihilates your convictions. Otherwise, it wouldn't be peer pressure. You see? Because we're so, and this is the thing, if we have not experienced the love and acceptance of God that we have in salvation, we are a slave to whatever it is we fear. We're a slave. An absolute slave. So you can be a saved slave to, to, to the wrong things. And, it's, and, and, here's, and you can spend the rest of your life researching, studying, examining, you know, all the different coping mechanisms and tactics to stop doing this certain behavior and all that, and it will do you no good. It will do you no good. You can't, you have to attack the fear. If you don't get the fear out, the behavior will never change. It will never change. So if there's this repetitive cycle of behavior in your life, it's fear-based. you got to get to the fear. Somewhere in there is fear that's causing it. And if you ask yourself, why is it some people can be so off the, you know, just so messed up, and then 
come to Christ and then just seem like they're just totally revolutionized and here you are trying. It's because, it's because they grasped the grace replaced performance. They realized that I am accepted and loved by God and that trumps everything else. If you can do that, that's where victory is. Right there. So, fear fear will override. That's why fear is the the fear of man is called a snare. Because it'll it'll snare you right in the midst of your it'll it'll overwhelm your your truth. It'll overwhelm your principles. You'll bow under the pressure of it if you're not if you're not in a healthy place. All right, so here's what happens in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So Paul's saying, all right, he's dealing with this hypocrisy. You're not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all. Now look, he didn't pull them aside. He didn't. If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as the Jews? Ouch. I mean, he just goes straight ahead. So he uses this word, you are not straightforward. Straightforward. Orthopedio. Pedio, that's where we get the word like foot. Podiatrist, foot. Ortho, orthodontist. What do they do? They make things straight. Straight-footed. Straight-footed. Walking straight. Being straight. So here's what happens. Peter was denying the truth of the gospel and destroying the unity of the church because here's what happens what happens is is that where you have a person who gets caught in this thing the reason why it's incumbent upon the rest of us to have this conversation is for the because the the community is at stake here look They veered off the road of gospel truth and landed in the ditch of hypocrisy. Now, they were on the right road, and they veered off. And here's the thing. We're not condemning uh, Peter, blaming Peter. We all do this. But what we need is somebody to come to us and say, hey, you're not being straight-footed. This is wrong. This is because here's why. When you get in the ditch of hypocrisy, when you live in hypocrisy... What does hypocrisy do? It destroys you, but it destroys unity. See, it wears you out, but it destroys unity. Because as soon as I... Listen, look, we're walking together in pilgrimage. The minute I find out you're a hypocrite, I don't want to walk by you anymore. Think about it. If you found out I was a hypocrite, you wouldn't want to come here anymore. It destroys unity. If you have someone in your family who's a hypocrite, you don't want to, you don't want to be in that community. You don't want to, you see, hypocrisy repels, it breaks down community. So this isn't just an issue of, and here's the thing, why? The Bible's not teaching us here that when you have a 
straightforward conversation with somebody, you do it publicly. That's not what this is teaching. Do you know why Paul addresses Peter in front of everyone? Because the Bible clearly said that it was the whole group of them. Remember Barnabas got swept into it and the other Jews had? And so he's got to deal with everybody. Or he's not going to have 30 individual conversations. He's like, come on, bring it in. We're about to have a talk. Because they're all acting like hypocrites. All right, look at the next verse, 15. So we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So here's what he's saying. He is coming straight in and he's saying, performance will get you nowhere. That's what that means. No flesh can be justified by works of the law. You can't perform your way in. Grace is the only way to exist in Christ. It's the only way to find freedom. So you see, he says, look, neither birth nor behavior will make you right with God. It doesn't matter what if you were born into the right family, born into the right situation. That doesn't make you right with God. Your behavior doesn't make you right with God. He's trying to get him to focus in on grace because grace is the missing ingredient here. That's how performance creeps in. So it's giving us a blueprint. It's giving you a blueprint to be able to go home and process all this and, and bring healing into your life. Where you, Some of you know that you, are, you actively live in performance. You long for the acceptance and the approval of people. And you know it's unhealthy. And you want to stop and you can't. You got a grace problem. You need grace. You, need to, you, you, don't, you don't need more grace than you have. You need to experience the grace you have in Christ. Alright, so here, here's... I mean, verses 15 and 16 are like a complete gospel presentation in two verses. So he's saying, look, you're not, it's not birth, it's not behavior. He says everyone is guilty. You see, we're not justified by works of the law because no one can be. We're, everyone, everyone's guilty and everyone needs justification. Now, in case you, you know, haven't been through starting point or you're not you know, familiar with justification... Justification is what happens when a person becomes a Christian. The Bible says that they're declared not guilty. They are once and for all to be justified. Every saved person is justified. And every justified person is declared not guilty by God. Because you can't be in fellowship with God if you're guilty. So you have to be Your sin has to be utterly forgiven, past, present, and future, for you to walk in relationship with God. And so in order for that to happen, you have to be justified. Now, justification is not simply forgiveness because you could be forgiven and then do something to make yourself guilty again. You see? Justification is a legal term, but it doesn't fit 
in any legal example I could give you today because our legal system doesn't work with justification. The only thing I could do is, is describe it to you by saying that because if you, if you get taken to court for something and then you get... And, and the judge declares you not guilty, then you can still be, it could be appealed, you could be taken to the next court for something else or whatever. It's, you know, it's complicated. And then it goes up and up and up, and it goes to the Mississippi Supreme Court. And then finally, from there, the highest court it can go to is the U.S. Supreme Court. And if the U.S. Supreme Court hears it, and the U.S. Supreme Court says you're not guilty, then no one can reach, you know, there's no higher court that can come back after you but even that's not even a a, even close to a worthy example because in justification the the ruling judge of the universe says you're not guilty no one can challenge his authority if he says you are not guilty it doesn't matter what anybody or if everyone else on earth says something it is still pointless because there are no voices there's no collaboration of voices there's never been a voice there'll never be a voice that can rival the voice and the authority of the one who says you are not guilty not only are you not guilty but you can never be guilty forevermore ever because he has the authority to do that Because all of the guilt is based on offense against him. So the one and only person who can do this does this. See, it's not a pardon. It's nothing like a pardon because a pardoned criminal still has a record. See, a justified person... Oh, see, I have a a record. You know what? If you're saved tonight, you have a record. You know what your you know what my record is? The same as your record. It's Jesus' record. So when you go to examine my past history, clean as a whistle. Because his record was imputed to me at salvation. That's the only way I can be in relationship with him. He took my record on himself and gave me his record. See, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. See how that happened? Yes. So when you are justified, your slate is clean, your record is erased, and your file is empty. It's empty. And the reason we're having this conversation is because in order for you to, to, to understand the magnitude and importance of this issue of grace is to understand what's been done for you. See, if you still think things are lingering on your record, then you got a bad idea of grace and you're not going to be able to replace it for performance. you got to understand what grace is. you got to understand the magnitude of what I'm talking about when I say grace. And so not only is your slate clean, your record erased, and your file empty, but your sentence is eternal life. So the highest judge in the universe says, you are not guilty, and I hereby sentence you to eternal life with me. Praise the Lord. 
so, so, what is, so what happens when Paul confronts Peter? Peter gets mad. He gets, you know, he gets all tangled up. His feelings get hurt. He runs off into the wilderness. He hasn't been heard from for five years. And then he slowly comes back after a long process of, of uh, all sorts of counseling and, you know, I mean, no, that's what happens to us today. No, that's not what happened to him. This is, this is the healthy picture of what's supposed to... You know what Peter did? He repented and they moved on and God was glorified because he understands what's going on. See, to be authentic is to be free to embrace repentance. You, your authenticity... Authentic people repent. But the, the thing is, is that you got to know all these things we've talked about before to get to that. It's not that simple. In other words, yes, authentic people repent. Great. So if, if when you are wrong, your first response is to repent, then, you, then that means you have grace in the right place. But if you're resistant to repentance, which is most people today, you got a grace problem. You're still operating in performance. You're, you're, you got a fear problem. You got a fear problem. You don't understand what justification is. The reason people, whenever somebody resists repentance, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's because their life has hypocrisy in it. They're hiding something. If you're not hiding anything, you'd repent. You're still performing. You're still, you're, you're wearing a mask. You're mad because I'm coming to you. Somebody's coming to you. See, if you come to me, I'm not going to get mad. As long as you're right. Now, if you're wrong, I'm going to get mad. But if I come to you and I'm wrong, I would expect you to get mad. But that's not going to happen. I'm going to be really sure, or as sure as I can be before I come to you, and we're going to have a conversation. And here's the thing. I know who I am. I know I'm not perfect. And I know God's given me the gift of repentance. And so if I'm wrong, I repent. It's no problem. So we move on. But when someone won't repent, they're a hypocrite. They're hiding something. And you're afraid that, that you're going to get exposed. And, you're, and, you're, and what it is is, here's the thing. The, see, the issue is not, is not, and this is the problem. You think the issue is me getting you to stop doing what you're doing. That's not the issue. That's just the thing that got us here. The issue is you're destroying your community. You're defaming the name of Christ with your hypocrisy. And you're suffering. Really, when somebody... look, You know what repentance is? Repentance is medicine for our sickness. That's what it is. You're going, I don't want any medicine. I'm just going to sit here and be sick. I'm just going to... I mean, you see what I'm saying? That's what you're doing. Repentance is medicine for the sickness we all have. And God says, here's the cure. You can have as much of it as you want. You can take it every day. You can take it every hour. You can take it every minute. 
And it'll, it, always, it cures everything we got. So here's the takeaway. Being authentic means that God and His Word define what is real. Now it's going to get a little dicey for a minute. Because, see, look, if, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, uh, you know, I'm concerned about this situation. And, you know, the effect it's having on you or the people around you or whatever it is. And then you say, well, that's your opinion. No, we're not talking about opinions. See, if it's an opinion, then if it was an opinion, I would have never came to you. We're not talking about opinions. We're talking about reality. So watch, watch this. So Jesus says in Matthew 7, 20, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. He says in Luke 6, 43 and following, For the good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does the bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from the bramble bush. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, while Christians are confused about what it means to be authentic, Jesus clearly is not. Jesus, if anyone knew what authentic was, it was Jesus. If anyone, if you want to know how to be authentic, all you got to do is read, read the words of Jesus. Jesus is the master teacher on authenticity. See, in Matthew chapter 13, the, very, the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the famous parable of the soils, right? The sower goes out, sows the seed, sows the word of God, four different soils. Uh, Satan snatches it up. It doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And then there's one good soil. The word of God goes on that soil and it produces fruit, right? But why does he tell that story? Did it just drop out of the sky? Did he just wake up one morning and go, well, you know, they were like, please tell us a bedtime story. And so he's like, okay, let me think. Okay, there's this farmer. That's not how that happened. Here's how that happened. Just prior to the parable of the soils, the very last thing that happened in Matthew chapter 12 was one of my favorite passages in the Bible where Jesus is surrounded by multitudes of people and he's in the house and he's doing ministry and the disciples push through the crowd and get in there where Jesus is and they say, Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they're seeking to speak with you. And Jesus said, negative. I'm not going out there to talk to them. And his answer was, who is my mother and my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples, his community. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister and brother. 
He said, my family is defined by doing the will of God. So the disciples are like, mind is blown. What in the world are you talking about? That is your mom and that is your brothers that are out there. And to explain to them what he means by that, he tells them the parable of the soils. You got that? So he's in essence saying they're confused about now how now wait a minute now who's your family because we're still confused the christian community is totally confused about this i mean we think everyone that comes to church is our family wrong that's wrong we hope they become that one day but that's not no we 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 the people that the more we love somebody the more lenient we are on defining whether or not they're family or not you know it's true you know it's true we make excuses for everybody. And so Jesus says, well, there's four different kinds of soil. And here's the point. Only one type produces fruit. Only one. Listen, the defining mark of the soil is not, does, the, does anything sprout up? No, nope, because some of them sprout up and die, right? There's the, the only defining mark of the soil, the only thing that, that differentiates good soil from the other three is fruit. Most of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament is devoted to the identification of counterfeits. I mean, you read all the red letters in your Bible... And the vast majority of it is this issue. Because it's such a problem for us. You see, contrary to the errant, easy-believism theology that the generation that preceded this generation dumped on our heads, and it's the truth, Jesus doesn't equate professing faith with possessing faith. Those are two different things. You see all this, you know, high pressure. We're going to have a, uh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to have revival. We're going to get you in here. We're going to have a high pressure altar call. We're just going to keep on until somebody comes down. You come down. You know, you sign a card. You make a profession. You go to, or we're going to knock on your door and tell you some story. And then we're going to say, you're going to pray a prayer. You repeat after me. And now you're going to go to heaven. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Fruit is in the Bible. What the Bible says is Christians produce fruit. Everyone else, not a Christian. That's a game changer right there. I could clear out most churches today with that one statement. Clear it out. Just clear it out. I don't care if you've been in, you hadn't missed church in 35 years. You don't produce fruit, you're lost. According to Jesus, you are lost. That simple. 
There's no question about it. So what he does is he warns his disciples that only one thing matters, bearing fruit. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. There's a visible difference between a real and a fake Christian. It's visible. It is visible. It is visible. It is visible. If you can't see it, it's because it's not there. So being authentic is not finding your true self. It's finding true salvation in the true Christ. See, what, what churches teach today is this theology of authenticity where you, being authentic is I am going to be my true, genuine, transparent self. See, that's just awkward to me. I don't want to be in a room full of that. I don't want to be in a... I mean, it's just... It's, it's, all, it's not true. That's not true. You, you embracing and connecting with your, your true inner self, that is not you being... If you're lost, that's authenticity. If you're saved... See, the deal is... If you want to be authentic as a Christian, you need authentic salvation through the authentic Christ. You need to be genuinely born again based on the words of the one who accomplished you being born again. Not what you feel, not what you think, not what you heard, not what you read in a Joel Osteen book. None of those things. The actual salvation according to the one who saves people. That's how you, I mean, you know what authentic means? Real. And so what we have is we have all these people running around acting like they're a Christian and they're absolutely going to hell because there's no fruit in their life. And that is so simple. I mean, that is like Bible kindergarten what it is authentic Christians bear the marks of an authentic faith in ways that can be seen heard and felt that's what Jesus said that's what he said being real is not it's not you're, you're, it's not more than regularly attending church it's not more than feeling good about God it's not more than accepting Jesus Christ as Savior it's not more than than, you know, being baptized. It's not more than, you know, becoming a member of a church. No. Real Christians, according to the Bible, are new creations. Okay? That means physically we look the same. Physically we look the same. But let me tell you something. When a person is saved, they're radically changed. Now, some people, it's more evident instantaneously, quickly, early on. But here's the point. It is evident 
It, it's, you're, not, you're not, hey, I got saved and then all these years passed and now all of a sudden I'm changing. That's not how that works. That is just not how that works. It's not, how that, it's not in the Bible. You're making up things. That is your own version of something that is not in the Bible. It's not there. The Bible says that in salvation we become new. We're, we're new people who we look the same on the outside, but we live new lives. We live new lives. We're not perfect. Not everybody's the same. You know, it's not, but, but it's, it's there. I mean, we got to get out of this. I mean, we just got to stop fooling ourselves. I'm just telling you. It just doesn't work like that. So, authentic Christians, when it comes to authenticity, Jesus has a simple message. Real is something you can see. It's something you can see. It's not invisible. You can see it. That's what Jesus said, okay? So now here's what I'm saying. We can't, the only way that I can be authentic with you and you can be authentic with me is to experience authentic salvation through the authentic Jesus. It's the only way. Because listen, every human being Prior to salvation is a hypocrite. But the, the, our whole life is built on hypocrisy. And when, when we become saved, you know what? It, we, it becomes this journey of all the hypocrisy is not rooted out of our life instantaneously. But it is a journey of just ripping that out. It's just ripping that out and ripping that out and ripping that out. But here, but where is it? Where is it most evident, most early? Think about this. When you, when you got saved, when I got saved, I was a complete hypocrite. God saved me. Now, I still had hypocrisy going on. But where was the first place the, the hypocrisy disappeared? Here. In community. I mean, it took me a long time to weed the hypocrisy out of the relationships I have with my lost friends, with jobs, with work, with all these external things. But the first place is here. Because if you have suddenly freed from hypocrisy and suddenly now your life that was once dominated by performance is now dominated by grace and you're in community with other people whose lives are dominated by grace, you're not going to be a hypocrite. And here's the thing, if you are a hypocrite, then somebody who loves you is going to say, hey, I don't think you should be doing that. And you're going to go, thank you for telling me, I repent. Right? I mean, it's so simple. We make it hard. This is my conviction. Some of you think that, that uh, I mean, you, 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 you think about it, surely. If you can't stay here too long before you come in contact with it. And so you say to yourself, 
Pastor Tony runs people off. No, no, Pastor Tony's not running people off. The truth is running people off. Because let me tell you something about people. When a person comes here who's lost but is dead set on convincing everybody that they're saved, you're going to be a miserable human being in this place. You're going to get wore out. And so what happens is, is that, and you know, it just depends on how hard-headed and stubborn you are. Some people can take it for a week. Some people can take it for a month. Some people can take it for a year or two. But eventually you got to go. Or you got to repent. Because the truth is just going to wear you out. So here's what, as I... I prayed today for you. And I said, Lord, there's going to be people here tonight that have just been destroyed by legalism. Just destroyed by it. And so their, their performance was so embedded down deep inside of them because they grew up in a religious culture of performance. You see, thank God I didn't have to deal with that. And so when you hear this, you know, and I start talking about reading you what Jesus says about being authentic, and the first thing that happens is you start heaping condemnation on yourself. Well, I mean, I don't know. Is there fruit in my life? Am I saved? Am I, I'm probably not saved. There's not enough fruit. There's not, and, and you know what your compulsion is? It's to get right back on the stationary bicycle of performance and start pedaling that thing like crazy again. To generate what? Fake fruit. And then there's then, then on the other side of the coin, there's, there's no doubt somebody in the room who's you're, you're struggling with your salvation. And the reason you're struggling is because you're lost. And you got to figure out what am I going to do? And right now your heart's beating your heart. Why is your heart rate so elevated? No one knows it but you, but your heart's beating out of your chest right now. Why? Because you're lost, that's why. I'm not doing that. There's a whole bunch of people in here, and we're totally calm right now, but your heart is beating out of your chest because you are lost, and you will not repent. You won't admit it. You're a hypocrite, and you're so worried. You're, and the reason you... And listen, this is how strong fear is. You're so afraid... To surrender, that you'll roll the dice with hell. Don't leave here. Stop. I mean, stop. Just stop. Surrender. Give up. Put grace where performance is. And for the once and for once in your life, just know I am fully known and fully accepted by God. Not because of anything I've done, but because of everything He's done. And nothing can ever change that. And then, listen, then when people tell you that you're wrong, it won't kill you. 
because the king of the universe told you that you're right. See? You see? There's freedom. There's freedom. No more. No more performance trap. 